This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. Morning, everybody. Uh, Adam Palmer, Chief of the Vancouver Police Department. Thank you all for joining us this morning. There's a few things that we do want to talk to you about this morning. So just before 6 p.m. last night, three people were amongst a crowd of other people near the festival's main stage near Columbia and Kiefer Street. So that would be the 500 block of Columbia Street. With no warning and for no apparent reason, a stranger approached these three people and attacked them, stabbing each of them. The victims are a man and a woman in their early 60s and another woman in her early 20s. The three victims were all taken to local hospital for treatment. The injuries are serious, but not life-threatening. VPD officers were working a special assignment call-out at the festival when these attacks occurred and immediately jumped into action, providing um, quick response and provided aid immediately to the three victims. They spoke to people nearby and obtained eyewitness descriptions of the suspect who had left the area immediately following the attack and they relayed this information to many other officers working in the area. And I just have to say how incredibly, incredibly proud I am of these police officers. Their poise, their quick thinking, their presence of mind, because I will tell you when something like that happens, there's an initial moment of chaos where you will see you know, rumblings in the crowd. You're not exactly sure what you're dealing with, but to go into that uh, chaotic situation and to restore calm to that uh, tragedy is exactly what our officers did. Uh, this prevented further victims and led to the quick arrest of a suspect. The suspect in these uh, attacks is a 64-year-old man. He's a non-Vancouver resident who was located within minutes of the crime in the downtown east side and taken to jail. He has had contact with police in the past, but not here in Vancouver. We have no VPD records of this person. He was on a day pass from a lower mainland forensic psychiatric center outside of Vancouver. And we're also working with Crown Council to obtain charge approval, which we are hoping for in fairly short order. Though a suspect has been arrested, charges have not been laid. And as I mentioned, for that reason, I can't give you a lot of specific detail. And I also can't speak about the motive for the attack because I don't know what it is at this point. I know that there will be lots of questions, you know, given, of course, we have had stranger attacks. We've had anti-Asian attacks in our city and other type of hate-motivated crimes in our city. But this is obviously forming an important part of the investigation and is a key part as our investigators drill down to try and figure the motive. But I can't tell you that today, uh, what the actual motive was and what was in the mind of this person when they acted the way they did. 
but it will be an important part of the investigation and also, of course, future court proceedings. The victims have been treated for their injuries and in time, their physical scars should heal, but their emotional scars and the scars inflicted on the community as a result of this crime will, of course, take much longer. Please know that we're in this together and that we have your backs and that crimes like this one that happened last night do not define the Chinatown community. And I promise you that myself and members of the Vancouver Police Department will continue to work closely with Mayor Sim, with our council, and all of our community leaders that we have here today and others in community to do everything in our collective power to support you and build on the tremendous progress that we have made together in Chinatown. I will now turn it over to Mayor Ken Sim before taking any questions. On an evening that should have been a joyous celebration, British Columbians once again came face to face with not only a faltering justice system, but a deeply disturbed individual from its recent past, a man that many believed had been locked away for good. This episode presents the murder of Stephanie Joy Donnelly and the continuous crimes of her father, Blair Evan Donnelly. And you are listening to True North True Crime. everyone and thanks for listening. If you're new to True North True Crime, welcome and make sure to hit subscribe or follow on whichever platform you're currently listening on. If you'd like more True North True Crime, you can subscribe to TNTC Plus on Apple Podcasts or on Patreon. For $5 a month, you'll get early access to our regular episodes. All of our episodes will be ad-free and of course, exclusive bonus episodes. We invite anyone with case suggestions to send us an email to truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. Please note we do prioritize cases that are sent to us directly from family members or close contacts of a case, but are more than happy to receive case suggestions from all of our listeners. We put this episode together using publicly available news articles as well as court documents. As an additional content warning, this episode contains content around severe mental health diagnoses and extreme violence. Without further ado, Let's go ahead and get right into tonight's episode. So in this episode, we're going to be discussing another case of a man who was found not criminally responsible for a homicide. This particular case will likely be familiar to those who are living in British Columbia and more specifically the greater Vancouver area, although people in Kitimat will be familiar with it as well. This case made headlines in September of this year, but it was not the first time that the accused had been in the spotlight. So tonight we're going to be talking about Blair Evan Donnelly and, uh, of course, the murder of his own daughter by him, and her name was Stephanie Joy Donnelly. This episode starts off in Kitimat, British Columbia, and extends to Chinatown in Vancouver over the course of 17 years. Now, for those unaware, Kitimat is a smaller municipality along the northern coast of British Columbia with a population of about 8,000 people. For many years, the community relied heavily on forestry, also aluminum smelting, and hydroelectric generating as their main economic drivers, but in recent years it has turned towards LNG as a new source of revenue and employment. Time-wise, this story begins all the way back in November of 2006. 
Blair Evan Donnelly, his wife, and their youngest daughter, Stephanie, were living in Kitimat, British Columbia. The family made the move from Alberta about 10 years earlier and had settled into their new hometown. For the rest of this episode, we will be referring to Blair's partner and Stephanie's mother as Mrs. Donnelly or Blair's wife. Uh, Her name does not appear in any court documents that we read or news articles that we came across, so we believe that there is a reason for this, and we will continue that trend throughout this episode. So first off, we'd like to talk to you about Stephanie Joy Donnelly. There's not a lot of information out there about Stephanie. She was a teenager in 2006, so there was no social media. There wasn't a big digital footprint for her. And we believe that a lot of the paperwork in this case, they um, went out of their way to not um, disclose a lot of information about her because she was a minor at the time. So according to an article in the Edmonton Journal from December 8th, 2006, Stephanie was a really popular girl at school and was a friend to everyone. She was a member of the Snow Valley Skating Club in Kitimat, where other members described her as a creative and exuberant skater. Stephanie was also known as the biggest cheerleader for her teammates. The president of the Snow Valley Skating Club had this to say about Stephanie. She was a very cheerful girl. Anytime we had a competition, you could always hear her voice from anywhere in the arena cheering on her teammates. Okay, so let's delve into Blair Donnelly's background. In 2006, Blair worked as a supervisor at the Eurocan Paper and Pulp Mill in Kitimat. This mill has since closed its doors, with its last day of operation being January 21st, 2010. This resulted in over 500 people losing their jobs and having a very difficult time finding employment in the area afterwards. Now, it was autumn of 2006 when Mrs. Donnelly, who was Blair's wife, began to notice changes in her husband's behavior. Notably, Blair was having a stressful period at work due to handling a large project. When this project finished, Blair felt underappreciated and was incredibly disappointed that the great effort that he put forth into this project did not result in a promotion. Now, Blair had always been a man of faith, and like so many others, he often turned to God in his time of need. He began spending much more time consuming religious materials, listening to religious music and sermons, and engaging in prayer. In the weeks leading up to the incident that would take place on November 23, 2006, Blair stated that he didn't notice anything out of the ordinary with his well-being other than having difficulty sleeping. However, According to the evidence, there was an indication of Blair struggling to perform well at work due to difficulty concentrating. He had also lost a significant amount of weight in a very short period of time. So let's go ahead and get into the timeline of events that would unfold on November 23, 2006. Blair woke up early that morning to engage in prayer and to read a sermon that had been provided to him by his pastor. However, his behavior took an unusual turn afterward, according to his wife. He unexpectedly returned to bed and demanded sexual activity, which was odd for two reasons, the exceptionally early hour and his difficulty in maintaining an erection. At some point that morning, and it remains uncertain whether it occurred while initially reading the sermon or during a reread later on, Blair conceived the notion that God was instructing him to kill his wife. This belief seemed to stem from what Blair perceived as concealed messages within that sermon. Around 7.15 a.m., he joined his wife and daughter for breakfast, but Blair didn't eat, claiming he wasn't hungry. Mrs. Donnelly found his behavior strange at the time, 
and then Blair left for work, but on his way, he began to reconsider going. He was distressed by the notion that God was instructing him to harm his wife, and it seemed he had some reservations, leading him to make an impromptu stop at a gas station to buy a scratch-and-win lottery ticket. Blair believed that if the ticket turned out to be a winner, it would serve as a signal from God confirming that he needed to harm his wife. But once Blair had purchased the ticket, he felt ashamed of himself. He realized that he had unintentionally mentally put a price on his wife's head and was trivializing the orders that he had received from God. He did not end up scratching his ticket. Blair returned home without going to work, and Mrs. Donnelly recalls that he seemed agitated. He entered the kitchen and, without his wife's knowledge, retrieved a knife which he concealed inside his jacket. He then made his way to the bedroom, and later on, he started to wander around the house with his hands inside his jacket, gripping the concealed knife, all without his wife's awareness. Mrs. Donnelly tried to talk to Blair to see if she could find out what was going on with him, but he didn't answer her. She asked him to take his hands out of his jacket, but he refused. Mrs. Donnelly asked him to sit down, which he did, but then Blair described being unable to move. Mrs. Donnelly told Blair that she was afraid and intended to call either the police or their pastor, eventually deciding on the pastor who then arrived at their home. Prior to this day, their pastor had never made a house call to the Donnelly home. While the pastor was present, Blair seemed to calm down. The pastor reported not noticing anything out of the ordinary or alarming to him, and Mrs. Donnelly was even embarrassed that she made a fuss out of seemingly nothing. Unfortunately, neither of them were aware that Blair was having thoughts of homicide. The pastor and Mrs. Donnelly left the room to have a private conversation, and the pastor asked her what was going on. Mrs. Donnelly opened up explaining that she had concerns around Blair's behavior, which she felt was similar to an episode that he had roughly a decade earlier, which had landed him in the psychiatric hospital. She told the pastor that Blair had suffered religious delusions at that time, and she was concerned it was happening again. According to court records, it seems that Blair also talked to the pastor about his previous experience with his religious delusions, describing them as things having, quote, flipped, and what was wrong seemed right and what was right seemed wrong. He also told the pastor that he was feeling this way again. Their pastor stayed for roughly two hours, and after he was convinced that Blair was not having any more out-of-the-ordinary type thinking, he left. Mrs. Donnelly was also left feeling optimistic after the pastor attended their home. However, she still wasn't entirely comfortable with Blair being on his own while she was at work all day. She had a shift from 1 p.m. to 9 p.m., and she asked Blair if he could spend some time at a friend's house while she was at work, and Blair agreed. At around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Blair took his daughter Stephanie to a hair appointment. After he dropped Stephanie off, he came back home, and then around 4.30, a co-worker came over to retrieve a cell phone and a pager. The co-worker spent approximately 20 minutes at the Donnelly residence, and the co-worker reported that Blair displayed peculiar behavior during that visit. The two were not particularly close, nor did they share the same religious beliefs. Nevertheless, Blair Donnelly engaged in religious discussions throughout the entire visit, and the co-worker noted a distant, unfocused look in his eyes. Later, when asked about this visit with the co-worker, Blair described it as mystical and surreal, and for whatever reason, he decided that this conversation had been of great significance. After his co-worker left, Mr. Donnelly became increasingly concerned about his daughter's safety and became fixated on the unfounded idea that some sort of harm might come to her. 
There was no legitimate basis for this line of thought. Blair had attached special significance to various unrelated and objectively inconsequential incidents, leading him to believe that Stephanie's life was indeed in peril. In response, Blair reached out to his wife at her workplace, and she subsequently contacted the hair salon to confirm that Stephanie's appointment would continue for another hour. After learning this, Mr. Donnelly found some relief and proceeded with his previously arranged plans to spend the evening at their friend's house. So once everyone realized that Stephanie was okay, she was at her appointment, there was no harm coming to her, and Blair had plans to visit a friend. Um, And of course, uh, Blair's wife was continuing to do her shift until 9 p.m. Everything seemed to calm down. When Blair was at his friend's residence, his demeanor was described as detached, melancholy, and distant. However, none of the people present felt that his behavior was so out of the ordinary that it was cause for concern. But unbeknownst to his friends, Blair was in the middle of a psychotic episode. It seems that Blair was finding meaning in almost everything going on around him. He viewed occurrences such as the dog playing with a skunk toy and his friend choking on his tea as indications of God's disapproval of him for not carrying out harm to his wife. He believed that God was displeased with him due to his wavering faith. Eventually, he left for home, overwhelmed by what he described as an intense, oppressive heaviness. Blair arrived home sometime after 9 p.m., and his daughter Stephanie had already returned home from her hair appointment. Blair noticed that the sermon he had read earlier that day was sitting open on his computer. He didn't recall leaving it open that way, so he inferred that this was yet another sign from God. Blair then put all of the supposed messages he had been receiving that day together and deduced that God wanted him to kill his daughter Stephanie. If he didn't follow through... Not only would he have to kill Stephanie, but he'd need to kill his wife and his eldest daughter as well. Blair then made his way to the kitchen, where he picked up the knife he had held inside his jacket earlier that day and stabbed his daughter multiple times. He started stabbing her in the chest before moving to her neck. Blair cut Stephanie's throat from the front all the way down to the spine and into the bone. Now, evidence suggests that the initial injuries consisted of three stab wounds to the chest that went through the heart and the left lung. The large wound to Stephanie's neck cut through her carotid artery, internal jugular vein, larynx, and esophagus. Although there was absence of significant bleeding around the neck injury that implies that her heart was likely pumping weakly or not at all when that injury occurred, but that neck injury would have been fatal on its own. There was also a lack of evidence that pointed to there being a struggle between Blair and his daughter, suggesting that she may have been ambushed. Blair had a single scratch on his face, and Stephanie had a broken fingernail. Aside from those minor injuries and the blood around Stephanie's body, nothing else in the house was out of place. Blair left the house, leaving his daughter's body for his wife to discover once she returned home from work. Blair had gone to a church to pray, And the court document suggests that he very quickly came to the realization that what he had done was wrong and that his belief that God wanted him to harm his daughter was incorrect. Blair was then arrested and charged with second-degree murder. In January of 2008, Blair Evan Donnelly's case went before the courts. Both the Crown and the defense agreed that Blair did in fact kill his daughter and that he intended to do so. However, they were in court to answer one question should he be found not criminally responsible due to his mental disorder. 
In section 16 of the criminal code, the onus is put onto the person who is trying to suggest a lack of criminal responsibility to prove that the accused suffered at the time of the incident from a mental disorder that rendered them incapable of understanding what they were doing was wrong. In order to prove this, the court needed evidence. The evidence in this case would come down to an agreed-upon statement of facts, as well as the testimony of two psychiatrists. Both psychiatrists agreed that Blair suffered from bipolar mood disorder or bipolar affective disorder, and that Blair was in a hypomanic state at the time of the homicide. So even though the psychiatrists were in agreement that Blair indeed had a mental disorder and was in a hypomanic state at the time, they needed to agree that these factors would have made him incapable of understanding his actions were wrong at the time as well. One of the psychiatrists essentially indicated that Blair might have been more focused on what he perceived as God's will rather than the specifics of his actions. Eventually, after all of the arguments, the judge would agree with the psychiatrist, and he stated, quote, The evidence satisfies me that Blair, at the time of the offense, did not know what he did was wrong. To the contrary, he considered himself to be fulfilling God's will. He was, to quote him directly, being a hero for God. In the circumstances, he did not commit the act in the knowledge that it would be seen by members of the community as morally wrong. Now, the judge went on to say that he reached his conclusion despite the assertion that it was possible that Blair was faking his mental illness symptoms. Both of the psychiatrists had carried out assessments on Blair, and they could find no evidence that he was malingering, and malingering is uh, psychiatrists speak for essentially lying. Instead, they could point to his previous history of having bipolar disorder and being admitted to a psychiatric facility a decade prior. They also had observations from more than one person leading up to the homicide that Blair was acting strangely and that he had no history of violence or crime against anyone. The following conclusion is directly from the court records from the Supreme Court of British Columbia. In light of the careful and thorough psychiatric assessment, the confidence of the expert witnesses in their views, and the complete absence of evidence that the defense of mental disorder has been concocted or exaggerated, I fully accept that Mr. Donnelly was, at the time of Stephanie Donnelly's death, not able, by reason of mental disorder, to appreciate that his actions were wrong. Accordingly, I find Mr. Donnelly to be not criminally responsible for the offense charged on account of mental disorder. So it was decided then that Blair Donnelly would be kept at the Forensic Psychiatric Hospital, otherwise known as Colony Farm, in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia. At the very end of the hearing, Blair's defense lawyer read a statement on his behalf, and it reads as follows. He has asked me to convey to his wife and family, and this may be the only forum in which that can be done, his sincere grief of what happened. He's told me repeatedly that he can't believe what he did. The depth of his emotion about what occurred is still resonating with him each and every day, and he wishes that he could undo everything that happened and which brought him here and made this whole tragic event ruin him and first and foremost his family, and he says that but for his mental difficulty, that he had, which he didn't realize the significance of, the last thing he would have wanted to do was hurt anyone, let alone his wife and daughter or daughters. And I just wanted to state that on his behalf, he is, quite frankly, 
unable to state it himself or he would do so. For those unaware, the Forensic Psychiatric Hospital at Colony Farm is a 190-bed secure facility in Coquitlam, British Columbia. Now, Colony Farm treats people who have been found not criminally responsible for a crime or were unfit to stand trial due to mental disorder. The hospital is operated by the Forensic Psychiatric Service Commission, which is part of the Provincial Health Services Authority. Colony Farm was originally part of the Riverview Psychiatric Hospital. The farm was hoped to be a place where residents of Riverview could learn skills and supply Riverview with food. However, by the time Riverview was closed and basically became a de facto film uh, studio for two decades, Colony Farm was positioned as the place where people were committed to involuntary treatment, usually after violent crimes. The prisoner list at Colony Farm has been a who's who of British Columbia's most violent offenders. Colony Farm boasts wraparound treatments for those in its care. However, recent revelations have shown that the hospital is far from safe. There have been a few patients who have simply walked away or not returned after being granted a day pass. In 2022, multiple workplace safety violations were identified after three workers were attacked by a patient, two of those workers suffered concussions, and one was left with back pain after an assault inside of a kitchen. The hospital, which is about 28 kilometers east of Vancouver, has a history of serious workplace safety infractions over the last decade. In 2019, the hospital was ordered to pay the largest work-safe penalty issued in the province's history for repeated safety violations after five workers were injured in two separate attacks by patients. This fine was $646,302 and was also the statutory maximum at the time. The hospital was also penalized $15,000 in 2016 for failing to comply with WorkSafe BC orders and $75,000 in 2014 after an attack by a patient in the hospital's high security unit left a worker with serious injuries. Adding to all of this, chronic understaffing and secrecy by the administrators from behind its walls have been called out by the media. There have been instances where government agencies have demanded records from the facility only to receive paperwork from the hospital that was grossly out of date or had keywords and phrases redacted. One WorkSafe BC report noted that the hospital's procedures were found to be lacking and didn't include steps for preventing violence by patients under certain specific circumstances. So just one year after Blair was found criminally not responsible for Stephanie's murder, his case was brought before the review board. At this time in February of 2009, the review board decided that they would grant Blair Donnelly up to 28 days of unescorted time away from the psychiatric facility where he was being held. This, as it would turn out, would be a bad decision. A few months later, while on a day pass in Surrey and under the influence of cocaine, he stabbed a former hospital resident that he had made friends with while he was out and visiting him. During Blair's visit, he suddenly grabbed a knife and threatened his friend with it. There was a struggle and the victim got his hand cut but managed to escape and call the police. Blair Donnelly fled and was found a day later. He was in a severe psychotic state and was returned to the forensic psychiatric hospital where he was under strict conditions for the next year. On January 26, 2010, a Surrey Provincial Court sentenced Blair to serve 45 days back at the same hospital. 
According to an article from the Vancouver Sun that was published on April 29, 2011, it was just days after Blair was sentenced that the review board once again decided that he would still have access to those unescorted leaves from the forensic psychiatric hospital, quote, depending on his mental condition. This caused public outrage as there had been other incidents of violent criminals being released from the same hospital into the community at this time as well. The previous Attorney General of British Columbia, Barry Penner, asked the federal government at the time to change the criminal code to make it harder for killers found not guilty due to mental illness to be released into the community. He wants the review board to prioritize public safety. Barry Penner also made the suggestion that the requirement for a review be changed from every 12 months to every three to five years for serious offenders. Blair's lawyer, however, argued that the review board's restrictions already protected the public. But the story doesn't end here. The reason we've chosen to cover this case is because of the headlines that Blair Evan Donnelly would make in 2023 when he was out on yet another unescorted day pass from Colony Farm. We'll get into that right after we take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And we are back. So before the break, we outlined the tragic homicide of Stephanie Donnelly, for which her father, Blair Donnelly, was found criminally not responsible due to ongoing mental illness. Now, a few years later, Blair was granted unescorted leave from the psychiatric facility. Now, while he was on that leave, he stabbed a friend who he had met at Colony Farm because the other person that he stabbed was also a resident there. And I guess the two of them were hanging out in Surrey one night, getting high on cocaine, when Blair just decided to stab him. Blair Donnelly was convicted for that assault, um, and he was sentenced to 45 days back at Colony Farm for the attack. Now, keep in mind that Blair was already living at Colony Farm, so he was essentially just sentenced to 45 days at home. Then in 2017, six years after he stabbed his friend, and 11 years after he stabbed his own daughter, Blair would commit another violent offense while in custody. He attacked a fellow resident at Colony Farm with a butter knife, but was again found not criminally responsible for the incident. So this is like, just to clarify here, this is like after 11 years of psychiatric care at Colony Farm, he's still stabbing people. Now fast forward to today, the year 2023. The Vancouver neighborhood of Chinatown was holding uh, a festival called Light Up Chinatown. Now, this festival started in 2020 after a rise in anti-Asian hate motivated members of the community to take back their neighborhood and invite people to celebrate their heritage and the historic area of Vancouver. 
Vancouver's Chinatown is one of the oldest and most vibrant Chinatowns in North America. Its history dates back to the late 19th century when Chinese immigrants, primarily from southern China, came to Canada to work on the construction of the Canadian Pacific Railway. Many of these immigrants settled into Vancouver and established the city's Chinatown. Now, unfortunately, Vancouver's Chinatown is also part of the notorious downtown east side area that is known uh, for having one of the highest concentrations of poverty, homelessness, and drug addiction and mental health issues in North America. It's important to note here that during the early days of the pandemic in 2020, there was a spike in violent crimes targeted towards Chinese and Asian people in the lower mainland of British Columbia. And nowhere felt that impact more than Vancouver's Chinatown. Add to this that there was significant urban decay in the area. The lack of foot traffic and shuttered businesses created the perfect storm for Chinatown to be overrun by a less than respectful element of society. Now with these struggles also came an increased rate of various types of crime, things like drug-related crime, drug deals, drug trafficking, and property-related incidents stemming from individuals trying to secure the finances to support their substance use. The property-related crime has made it incredibly difficult for business owners in the neighborhood to keep their heads above water. Repeated theft, vandalism, broken windows, and customers being wary of even entering the neighborhood to do their shopping are among the challenges that these businesses and the neighborhood has faced. Now, over the past three years, a substantial amount of money and community organizing has gone into creating a safer and more inviting Chinatown. With the support of the province, the feds, the mayor and council, and many nonprofits, there was a feeling that Chinatown would bounce back. Now, it's all these struggles that we just previously listed that led to the community deciding to create the Light Up Chinatown Festival in hopes of reinvigorating the area and attracting visitors and celebrating the rich cultural heritage of the neighborhood. We tell you all this to further paint the picture of why what happened at Light Up Chinatown Festival in 2023 was so incredibly tragic and rage-inducing. It was Sunday, September 10th, 2023, when thousands of people came to the streets of Vancouver's Chinatown to participate in the Light Up Chinatown Festival. On offer were live performances, amazing food and drinks, as well as various vendors selling their wares. It was, it was an incredibly festive atmosphere. What people don't know was that among them in the crowd was now 64-year-old Blair Evan Donnelly on an unescorted day pass from Colony Farm. Blair, in a completely unprovoked attack, allegedly ended up stabbing three complete strangers near the main stage at Light Up Chinatown. We have to say allegedly here because Blair Evan Donnelly has yet to be convicted of these crimes. The victims were a married couple in their 60s, as well as a 20-year-old woman who have all chosen to remain anonymous. All three of the stabbing victims were of Asian descent. Immediately after the attack, Blair fled on foot to neighboring East Hastings Street, where he was apprehended by Vancouver police without incident. The couple in their 60s did an interview with Global BC and said, We think, okay, because it's a festival with lots of people and it's crowded, we will be safe. And then I turn around, and I think at that time, the guy was trying to attack me on the back too. That's why when I turned around, he missed my back and got me on my arm. Also, I think, I'm not sure, he tried to stab me in my chest too. This man went on to say that when he tried to stand back up, the suspect tried to stab him again. He tried to kick him, but he fell and hurt his knee, and that was when the suspect ran away. 
The couple said that the man never said a word to them either before, during, or after the attack. The encounter has understandably left both experiencing feelings of fear and uncertainty. The wife told Global News, I'm feeling scared and in shock. I just keep looking for the man wearing the red shirt as I'm worried he might do something to somebody else. At the start of this episode, we used an audio clip from the press conference with VPD Chief Adam Palmer and Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim. Here's another portion of that presser where Chief Palmer fielded questions from reporters. As police chief, how concerning is it to you that the suspect was out on a day pass from a local psychiatric facility and able to essentially crash a community event and stab three strangers? Well, it's very concerning. It's terrible. But I have to frame it that we have to remember that there are many people in communities suffering from mental health issues. And the vast majority of people in community with mental health issues don't have any interaction with the police whatsoever. And they function well on medication or through counseling or different family supports. But there are some people in our community that don't function well and are a danger to the general public. And this person is one of those people, apparently. So I do have a lot of concerns when somebody of that nature is out roaming around, not just anywhere in our community. Also other issues like uh, stranger assaults, we have launched large projects such as uh, Project Reclaim, which was a joint project with our, organi- or, sorry, our major crime section, our patrol officers, our diversity section and other elements of the department to bring people to justice that commit uh, stranger assaults. And we've had very good success. We've reported many of those to you. Steve Addison could provide you many examples um, afterwards of arrests that we have made where people have committed these types of offenses. There's always um, a concern, and I'm just going to go back to your comment, when you have that intersection of mental health issues and criminality, and most cases of mental health issues don't intersect with police, but some do. And when they do intersect with police, sometimes they can be quite serious. So we do have very advanced programs in place with Coastal Health and the provincial government to address those issues, not only reactively, but proactively. So there's a whole host of different things that are all happening. But I think it's important to remember that, you know, Vancouver is not a small city anymore. You know, the city is just over 700,000, but the region is 2.8 million or something like that. And we are the epicenter for the entire province. So any large city in Canada or the United States, you are going to see, unfortunately, sometimes acts of violence. You're going to see things in our community that can be shocking at times. But I think it's important that, you know, we work together to have plans before crisis happens proactively to prevent things from happening. But, you know, I'm also a realist and I know that there will be crisis and there will be things that will happen in community. And it's also important that when that crisis happens, that we respond collectively to bring people to justice and also work with community to get through tragedies like this, because these can have long lasting impacts on people, you know, when they're violently assaulted, such as this, and then the overall community impact. So it's a host of things all working together to uh, keep Vancouver safe. But, um, you know, I don't want to give you any illusions that there will never be, you know, any more crime happening in Vancouver, because that's part of human nature, unfortunately. And we're going to do our best to curtail it and prevent it and investigate it when it happens. In this next clip, Chief Adam Palmer helps us to understand the relationship between the Crown Prosecutor and the role of law enforcement. In many, many jurisdictions across the country and in the United States and around the world, the police are able to file or press charges against somebody. However, that does not happen in British Columbia. In British Columbia, the police put forward 
uh, a recommendation for charges, and then the Crown Prosecution Office makes its decision as to whether charges will be laid. Here's Adam Palmer on that. Right. So that's a great question because I know like that's another point too, is that there's been lots of discussions about bail reform and catch and release and revolving door of justice, all these catchphrases that we always hear out in community. Um, this case, I'm very confident that this person will not be released. And the reason for that is serious criminal allegations, of course. So on that aspect, we are working with Crown Counsel or forensics people, our major crime investigators, victim services, patrol officers, um, many people that were involved in this case are all working together with the victims, putting a very solid case together for Crown Counsel. As you know, in British Columbia, uh, there's three provinces in Canada, BC, New Brunswick and Quebec, where the police can't lay charges. The charges have to be laid by Crown Counsel. And being that type of a province, we have to wait for Crown to sign off and give the approval. So we're working through that. Our detectives are working um, hand in glove with Crown to get all the evidence together. Because as you can imagine, in a large um, community event, there'll be lots of video. Um, you know, everybody's got a smartphone out nowadays. There's video on CCTV on surrounding buildings. So there's just a lot of evidence to collect and process. So that's happening right now. Our recommendation, of course, will be to keep this person in custody. But the reason that I'm confident in this particular case that this person will be held in custody is because aside from the criminal side, there is also the fact that he was on a day pass from a forensic psychiatric institute. So that will make it much easier to hold this person back in custody until this uh, works its way through the system. Okay, so let's get into the reaction to this senseless act of violence. And it came quickly. It was a massive blow to the organizers of the Light Up Chinatown event, the residents and business owners of Chinatown, as well as political leaders and Vancouverites alike. The organizer of Light Up Chinatown had the following to say to Vancouver is awesome. After putting on a very successful Light Up Chinatown, this is not how we thought it would end. They called the attack utterly devastating and heartbreaking. And before long, Vancouver's mayor, Ken Sim, made the following statement. This weekend, Vancouver was celebrating Light Up Chinatown, a festival which highlights the cultural diversity and rich communities our city has to offer. Earlier this evening, three people were attacked in Chinatown. Every single person who lives in or visits our city has a right to feel safe. To see individuals physically harmed by such senseless violence is heartbreaking. Our city stands shoulder to shoulder with Light Up Chinatown, our Chinese community, and all those who participated today. Our thoughts are with those who have been impacted by this act of violence. We wish all of those affected a speedy recovery and offer our support to their families and loved ones. At this time, we would like to acknowledge and thank the Vancouver Police Department for their quick response to the incident and for doing what they do each and every day to make our city a safer place. We will not allow this senseless act of violence to disrupt celebrations of all that makes our city great, and we will work each and every day to ensure Vancouver is a place where people can live, work, and thrive in a safe environment. And then on September 12, 2023, British Columbia's Premier David Eby did a press conference where he was uncharacteristically angry. I mean, this guy is usually just kind of a chill um, academic speaker. But in this press conference, he stated, I am so angry. I am white hot angry that this person was released unaccompanied into the community to have a devastating impact on all of the hard work of all of these community members. I cannot fathom 
how someone who murdered his daughter was released in 2009, went out and stabbed someone else, would then be released again unaccompanied, somehow be able to go out and buy a knife, go to Chinatown and stab three people. How is that possible? And so I can assure the people who were the victims of this attack and their families, everyone who was impacted by this horrific event, that our government will get to the bottom of what happened and we will do everything that we can to make sure it does not happen again. Now, that's a fair statement. And it was a passionate statement. We watched it on the news, very passionate. It was very inspiring. But we want to add some context here uh, that David Eby is not only a lawyer, uh, but before he became the premier, he was the attorney general for the province of British Columbia from 2017 to 2022, so the six years previous. And for more context, for those that don't know, the attorney general is responsible for, and this is directly from the government website, the attorney general is responsible for legal services, including sheriff and court administration services, legal aid, prosecution services, administrative tribunals, civil and family justice services, protection and promotion of human rights, and providing legal advice to the government. So... This actually, this entire situation actually kind of fell under his previous job. So journalists from many different media outlets tried to contact the forensic hospital in the days and weeks after the incident, but to no avail. They also tried to get in touch with the BC Review Board, who refused to speak about the attack on camera, stating that they can't speak to specific incidences. Nonetheless, the board did confirm that an order was issued in April concerning Blair's case, explicitly indicating that decisions regarding community access, whether accompanied or unaccompanied, were at the discretion of the director. So Rob Shaw from Czech News was actually able to get his hand on the board's decision from April, where Blair Donnelly was described as a significant threat. And here are the quotes directly from the board's decision. The board concluded that Mr. Donnelly continues to meet the threshold of significant threat. The index offense took the life of the accused daughter, and the subsequent offenses were also violent with the use of weapons. Of significant concern regarding risk assessment is that all the incidents occurred without warning signs and that the two relapses occurred after lengthy periods of remission without any indicators of decompensation. When ill, Mr. Donnelly has no insight into his deterioration. He requires significant supervision to ensure he does not cause further harm to the public. He continues to require the oversight of the review board. Despite all of this, the decision was made to allow Blair Evan Donnelly into the public unescorted. The board's decision report exposed an additional significant breach of public safety within Donnelly's case. This incident involved his placement in an unstaffed and unsupervised cottage, a move undertaken without the knowledge of the board or his medical professionals in the previous year. For context, this cottage is on the property of Colony Farm. Donnelly found himself without proper supervision for an extended duration following a marked change in his behavior characterized by a sudden display of assertiveness. The board expressed worries that if a doctor had not identified the issue, Donnelly might have continued to be left unattended in the cottage 
for an extended period, potentially extending to weeks. The document continues with concerns regarding public safety, including warnings issued by forensic psychiatrist Dr. Mandy Saney. Here's a quote from the document. Dr. Saney's testimony emphasized that Mr. Donnelly carries a substantial risk of relapse due to his history of rapid deterioration and past instances of violence. The accused has re-engaged in harmful behavior following prolonged periods of stability between episodes of violence, often with little to no warning signs, a unique aspect of his mental illness as described by Dr. Saney. Hence, a cautious approach is imperative to safeguard the public from Blair Donnelly. Blair Donnelly has voiced concerns about the pace of his reintegration, indicating a potential lack of awareness regarding the level of risk that he poses to the community. Now, when the general public found out all of this information and added context, people were understandably miffed and angry that this man was allowed out unsupervised. But this isn't the first instance of someone being housed at Colony Farm, being allowed back into society. In fact, according to an article from the Vancouver Sun, between the fiscal years of 2018 and 19 and 2022 and 23, the Forensic Psychiatric Hospital provided an average of 4,516 day passes per year. Now, out of those over 4,000 day passes there was an average of seven instances of unauthorized absences, which is when a patient does not return back to the facility when they were supposed to. But the BC Mental Health and Substance Use Services added, quote, It is extremely rare for a colony farm patient deemed clinically ready for a day pass to have interactions with the justice system while on a day pass. So you can decide for yourself whether that makes you feel safe or not. And Of course, as we have stated and been stated throughout this episode, not all people with mental health issues are violent. It is a very, very small, small percentage of people. And what really this episode is about is what do we do with that small percentage of people and how do we keep people safe? Now, for those of you who subscribe to TNTC+, uh, you will now be familiar with the aspects of this case because of our coverage of the Alan Schoenborn case on a TNTC Plus exclusive episode this month. Alan is also a patient at Colony Farm due to him being found criminally not responsible or not criminally responsible for killing his three children during a mental health crisis. Alan and Blair's cases have many similarities, which prompted Dave Teixeira, who is a victim's rights advocate, to speak out after the Chinatown stabbing incident. Now, for context, Dave acted as the family spokesperson for Darcy Clark, who was Alan Schoenborn's wife, um, in the wake of the murder of Schoenborn's children in 2008. Dave spoke with City News and said that the BC Review Board ignored the medical professional's advice when it came to Blair Donnelly's request for unescorted leave. He said, It's astonishing Donnelly was allowed a day pass, given he was deemed a significant threat. When referencing the BC Review Board document that was obtained by journalists, David said it reads like a desperate warning from the medical professionals who worked with Donnelly. For those who might be unfamiliar with what the BC Review Board does, we'll quickly summarize it for you. When a person is found NCR, or not criminally responsible, or deemed unfit to stand trial due to mental illness in BC, they are referred to the BC Review Board. 
The BC Review Board is composed of various members, including a chairperson, psychiatrists, psychologists, legal professionals, and community representatives. The board is tasked with making decisions regarding the detained individual's disposition, treatment, and potential release. They regularly assess and review the mental state of the accused individuals to determine if they continue to pose a significant threat to the public and if their mental health has improved. They also assess whether the individual can be safely managed in the community. The BC Review Board conducts annual or periodic hearings for each individual under its jurisdiction, which in the 2021-2022 fiscal year was 256 offenders. During these hearings, the board reviews the evidence and may hear testimony from various stakeholders, including the accused person, mental health professionals, legal representatives, as well as victims. They are also responsible for considering public safety when it comes to their decision-making. Their decisions aim to balance the rehabilitation and treatment needs of the individual with the protection of the community in mind as well. Now, Dave Teixeira has on multiple occasions said that these annual review hearings are incredibly distressing for the families who have been impacted by the accused's actions. And the fact that they happen yearly doesn't allow for a proper amount of time for victims to heal from the trauma that they've already endured. The only way for these annual reviews to be avoided is to have the offender labeled as a high risk. The high risk designation means that the offender is only up for review every three years rather than every year, thus allowing not only the family more time for healing, but also the offender to spend more time in treatment and other programs to aid in their rehabilitation. Crown actually applied for the high-risk designation to be given to Alan Schoenborn, but in 2017, the judge actually denied this request. This was despite the fact that Alan murdered his three children, and he's been involved in several violent incidents during his time at the Forensic Psychiatric Hospital. Darcy Clark, who was Alan's wife and the mother of the children that he murdered, was incredibly disappointed by the judge's decision. She said it was unexpected, shameful, and showed that public safety was not of paramount concern to the courts. Her actual quote is, With this ruling, I have lost all hope that there will soon be additional peace of mind, that such long, drawn-out legal proceedings are now over. Heartbreakingly, Darcy Clark passed away just two years later in 2019. The circumstances around her death were never made public, but Dave Teixeira released a statement that said the following, Her family was tormented by an evil man, then an uncaring justice and review board system. My hope is that Darcy's legacy will be that as a society, we care more for women, children, and the victims of crime than we do for a murderer and provide better support for those who suffer from mental illness. I hope Darcy's broken heart can now rest in peace. Dave continues his fight for victims and is pushing for the BC Review Board to be more transparent when it's holding these review sessions. These release decisions often occur without public awareness. According to Dave, the lack of advertising makes it easier for the Review Board to evade accountability and scrutiny for its choices. Dave has also met with three different premiers and seven attorney generals over the past 15 years who have all vowed to do something in regards to making changes. However, little progress seems to have been made. So let's go ahead and get back into Blair Evan Donnelly. 
He was supposed to make an appearance in court on September 27th, 2023, but a court ban is in place prohibiting publication of any information presented at Donnelly's bail hearing. So unfortunately, there aren't any updates publicly facing right now. Premier David Eby has opened an investigation into how Blair Evan Donnelly was allowed unfettered access to the community, had the ability to purchase a knife, and what can be done in the future to prevent this type of incident from ever happening again. He has brought in former Abbotsford Police Chief Bob Rich to investigate and bring some answers to the matter. David Eby has provided Bob Rich with the proper authority as well as the staff to be able to dig into the matter as effectively as possible. We need to acknowledge that there are many people who believe that the BC Review Board does great work, specifically in regard to ensuring that offenders who suffer from mental illness are able to have access to the help that they need, rather than having them sent to prison where it's much less likely that they would receive the same treatment. It is uncommon for individuals to receive a verdict of not criminally responsible due to a mental disorder. It accounts for less than 1% of adult criminal cases nationwide, according to Statistics Canada. The Mental Health Commission of Canada financed an examination of 1,800 individuals who received a not criminally responsible verdict due to a mental disorder in British Columbia, Ontario, and Quebec between 2000 and 2005. The National Trajectory Project discovered that after a three-year period, 17% of these individuals engaged in further criminal activity, which was only half the recidivism rate of those released from correctional facilities. Experts believe that this lower rate of reoffending stems from offenders who go to a psychiatric facility having much better access to mental health care than their counterparts who do their time in prisons. The debate over whether individuals found not criminally responsible should be granted day passes is a multifaceted one. It touches on issues related to mental health, criminal justice, community safety, and the rights of the individuals involved. As society's understanding of mental health and its complexities continues to evolve, the debate will likely persist and develop in new directions. At the end of the day, the belief in the potential for rehabilitation is a fundamental belief of modern criminal justice and mental health systems. It reflects a commitment to providing individuals with opportunities to address the underlying issues that led to their offenses and eventually reintegrate them into society as productive law-abiding citizens. This approach recognizes the possibility for change and growth and redemption. However, it's crucial to acknowledge the concerns raised by the public and by the victims. Transparency in the decision-making process for granting unescorted day passes should be a paramount consideration. In essence, while the belief in rehabilitation is crucial, it should not be at the expense of transparency, accountability, and community safety. It seems that a balance must be struck between acknowledging the rights of an NCR individual while addressing the legitimate concerns of the public and most importantly, the victims. Before we end this episode, we want to acknowledge that Kinemat Secondary School provides a scholarship in Stephanie Joy Donnelly's name. The scholarship provides financial help to a student who shows proficiency in academic excellence, humanitarian spirit, or dramatic creativity. That's all we have for this episode of True North True Crime. We will venture to post any updates on both Blair Evan Donnelly's case as well as Alan Schoenborn's on our social media pages in the future for anyone who wants to be kept in the loop. We will see you soon with a new episode. Until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe.